0: everyone this is kevin sykes bringing you another story from the american frontier at 1001 stories from the old west here you'll find stories about lawkeepers and lawbreakers indian fighters prospectors newspapermen and others written often by the men who lived during those times and others who wrote about it later it was a wild time in what congressman davy crockett called this britches buston country and an important time in american history we hope you enjoy tonight's story. Well, tonight we got a great story from John C. Fremont and his first expedition out west. And what we'll have in this is buffalo hunting, mountain climbing, and what has got to be the first inflatable raft descent of a western river. It was a wild ride, one that could only be done in the great American west. So buckle right up and let's hear about John C. Fremont's First expedition in the West. Trails of the Pathfinders by George Bird Grinnell, published in nineteen eleven. Chapter sixteen Fremont. The inequality with which fame distributes her favors has always been a fertile subject for moralist and philosopher. One man may do great things, and yet through innate modesty or ill fortune of some sort, may make no impression on the popular imagination, so that his deeds, Are soon forgotten. Another, by a series of fortunately narrated adventures of relatively much less difficulty and danger, may acquire the name of having accomplished great things. Zebulon M. Pike, the explorer, was a man of the first kind. John C. Fremont, commonly spoken of as the Pathfinder, and by many people believed to have been the discoverer of the Rocky Mountains, belonged to the second class. The work that Fremont did was good work, but it was not great. He was an army officer sent out to survey routes across the Continent, and he did his duty, and did it well. But he did not discover the Rocky Mountains, nor did he discover gold in California, as often supposed. He passed over routes already well known to the men of the plains and the mountains, and discovered little that was new, except the approximate location of many points. Nevertheless, in his two expeditions, which covered the years 1842 through 1844, he traversed 10,000 miles of wilderness between the Missouri River and the shores of the Pacific, and he connected the surveys of the state of Missouri with those made by the Wilkes Expedition at the mouth of the Columbia. This involved much labor and hardship, and was of high value at the time, but it is not to be compared with the work done by Lewis and Clark, or Zebulon Pike. And the fact that Fremont gained great fame while his predecessors seemed until recently to almost be forgotten seems unjust. Fremont's first expedition went only as far as the Rocky Mountains, terminating at the South Pass and Fremont's Peak. The second, which reached those mountains by another route, crossed them at South Pass and proceeded west to the Oregon River, the Columbia, and Northern California. The story of these two journeys is embodied in a report addressed to the Chief of the Corps of Topographical Engineers and published in Washington in 1845. Although a formal report made by an army officer and written in the ordinary style of an itinerary of the daily march, yet Fremont's account of his travels is told with much vividness and quite apart from the interest which attaches to it as a description of the still unexplored west it attracts by its graphic style. The accounts of the hunting, encounters with Indians, and mountain climbing are spirited, and the descriptions of wild scenery show real feeling. Fremont's party consisted of Charles Proust, his assistant in topography, L. Maxwell, a hunter, with Kit Carson as guide. L. Maxwell and Kit Carson had long before both been employed at Bent's Old Fort, Fort William. They had married sisters, daughters of Mr. Bobian of Taos, New Mexico, who, a few years later, was killed in the Pueblo uprising at Taos. He had over twenty Frenchmen, Creoles and Canadian voyageurs, old prairie men, who had been servants of the fur companies. Among these men are such names as Lambert, L'Espérance, Lefebvre, La Cadot, Clement, Simons. The children and grandchildren of some, perhaps many of these men, are still living at various points in the West, and still bear the names of their ancestors. Joseph Clement, for example, probably a son of old man Clement, lives today on the Standing Rock Indian Reservation in South Dakota. Nicholas and Antoine Jeunesse, a few years ago, was still alive, one at Pine Ridge and the other at Whetstone Agency in South Dakota. Antoine Jeunesse died at Pine Ridge in 1897, and his brother Nicholas about 1905. The expedition started on Friday, June 10th from Cyprian Chateau's trading post near the mouth of the Kansas River, in today's Kansas City, and marched up that stream. Their baggage instruments and provisions were carried in mule carts, of which they had eight, and the men, except the drivers of those carts, were mounted, and some of them drove loose horses. A few oxen were taken for food. They marched up the Kansas River, and from time to time purchased milk, butter, and vegetables from Indian farms, a condition of things which indicates that the Indians at the time were further advanced toward civilization and self-support than many of them seem to be at the present day. It was the practice to encamp an hour or two before sunset, when the carts were arranged so as to form a sort of barricade, or at least to mark out the boundaries of a circle about the camp, 80 yards in diameter. The tents were pitched, and the horses were hobbled and turned loose to graze, and but a few minutes elapsed before the cooks of the messes, of which there were four, were busily engaged in preparing the evening meal. When we had reached a part of the country where such a precaution became necessary, the carts being regularly arranged for defending the camp, guard was mounted at eight o'clock, consisting of three men who were relieved every two hours, the morning watch being horse guard for the day. At daybreak, the camp was roused and the animals turned loose to graze, and breakfast generally over between six and seven o'clock when we resumed our march, making regularly a halt at noon for one or two hours. During his march up the Kansas River, Fremont speaks of passing a large but deserted Kansas village, scattered in an open wood along the margin of the stream, on a spot chosen with the customary Indian fondness for beauty of scenery. The Pawnees had attacked it in the early spring. Some of the houses were burnt, and others blackened with smoke, and weeds were already getting possession of the cleared places. June 17. They crossed the Big Vermilion and Big Blue and saw their first antelope, while Carson brought in a fine deer. They were now on the trail of a party of emigrants to Oregon and found many articles that they had thrown away. Game begun to be abundant there were flocks of turkeys in the bottom of the little blue. Elk were seen on the hills, and antelope and deer abounded. When they reached the Pawnee country, many were the tales told of the craft and daring of these independent people. One rode up in haste, shouting, Indians! Indians! He stated that he had seen them, and had counted twenty-seven. The command was at once halted, and the usual precautions made for defense while Carson, mounting one of the hunting horses, set out to learn the cause of the alarm. Mounted on a fine horse without a saddle and scouring bareheaded over the prairie, Kit was one of the finest pictures of a horseman I had ever seen. A short time enabled him to discover that the Indian war party of twenty seven consisted of six elk, who had been gazing curiously at our caravan as it passed, and were now scampering off at full speed. This was our first alarm and its excitement broke agreeably on the monotony of the day. The party now crossed over to the Platte River, which Fremont calls the Nebraska, and encamped on its banks. Two days later, while they were halted for noon, there came the startling cry, Du Monde! People, in a moment, all were prepared for defense. Horses were driven in, hobbled and picketed, and the horsemen were galloping at full speed in the direction of the newcomers, Screaming and yelling with the wildest excitement. The travelers proved to be a small party under the charge of a man named John Lee, which had left Fort Laramie two months before, endeavoring to transport the furs of the American Fur Company down the Platte by boat. They had found that their waterway had become too shoal for their boats. They had therefore cached their possessions and started east on foot carrying on their backs their provisions, clothing, and a few light furs. It was from among this party that Fremont engaged La Tulipe, who, though on his way to St. Louis, really had no special desire to go there, and was quite willing to turn about and face west again. The same day three Cheyennes were met, returning from an unsuccessful horse-stealing expedition against the Pawnee village. They joined the party and for some days afterward traveled in its company. On the 20 ninth the first buffalo were seen, and on the following day these animals swarmed in immense numbers over the plain, where they had scarcely left even a blade of grass standing. We heard from a distance a dull and confused murmuring, and when they came in view of their dark masses there was not among us one who did not feel his heart beat quicker." It was the early part of the day when the herds are feeding, and everywhere they were in motion. Here and there a huge old bull was rolling in the grass, and clouds of dust rose in the air from various parts of the bands, each the scene of some obstinate fight. Indians and buffalo make the poetry and life of the prairie, and our camp was full of their exhilaration. Here, first, they feasted on buffalo meat. Fremont says at any time of the night might be seen pieces of the most delicate and choicest meat roasting on sticks around the fire and the guard were never without company with pleasant weather and no enemy to fear and abundance of the most excellent meat and no scarcity of bread or tobacco. They were enjoying the oasis of a voyager's life. Three cows were killed today. Kit Carson had shot one and was continuing the chase in the midst of another herd, when his horse fell headlong, but sprang up and joined the flying band. Though considerably hurt, he had a good fortune to break no bones, and Maxwell, who was mounted on a fleet hunter, captured the runaway after a hard chase. He was on the point of shooting him to avoid the loss of his bridle, a handsomely mounted Spanish one, when he found that this horse was able to come up with him. The next day, July 1st, Fremont himself made a chase for buffalo. He says, As we were riding quietly along the bank, a grand herd of buffalo, some seven or eight hundred in number, came crowding up from the river where they had been to drink, and commenced crossing the plain slowly, eating as they went. The wind was favorable, the coolness of the morning invited the exercise. The ground was apparently good and the distance across the prairie, two or three miles, gave us a fine opportunity to charge them before they can get among the river hills. It was too fine a prospect for the chase to be lost, and halting for a few moments, the hunters were brought up, saddled, and Kit Carson, Maxwell, and I started together. They were now somewhat less than a half a mile distant, and we rode easily along with them until about 300 yards, when a sudden agitation a wavering in the band, and a galloping to and fro of some of which were scattered along the skirts, gave us the intimation that we were discovered. We started together at a grand gallop, riding steadily abreast of each other, and here the interest of the chase became so engrossingly intense that we were sensible to nothing else. We were now closing upon them rapidly, and the front of the mass was already in rapid motion for the hills, and in a few seconds, the movement had communicated itself to the whole herd. A crowd of bulls, as usual, brought up the rear, and every now and then, some of them faced about, and then dashed on after the band a short distance, and turned and looked again, as if more than half inclined to stand and fight. In a few moments, however, during which we had been quickening our pace, the rout was universal, and we were going over the ground like a hurricane, when, at about thirty yards, we gave the usual shout and broke into the herd. We entered on the side, the mass giving way in every direction in their heedless course. Many of the bulls, less active and less fleet than the cows, paying no attention to the ground and occupied solely with the hunter, were precipitated to the earth with great force, rolling over and over with the violence of the shock and hardly distinguishable in the dust. We separated on entering— each singling out his game. My horse was a trained hunter, famous in the West, under the name of Provot, and, with his eyes flashing and the foam flying from his mouth, sprang on after the cow like a tiger. In a few moments he brought me alongside of her, and rising up in the stirrups, I fired at the distance of a yard, the ball entering at the termination of the long hair, and passing near the heart. She fell headlong at the report of the gun, and checking my horse, I looked around for my companions. At a little distance, Kit was on the ground, engaged in tying his horse to the horns of a cow which he was preparing to cut up. Along the scattered bands, at some distance below, I caught glimpse of Maxwell, and while I was looking, a light wreath of white smoke curled away from his gun, from which I was too far to hear the report. Nearer, and between me and the hills, toward which they were directing their course, was the body of the herd, and giving my horse the rein, we dashed after them. A thick cloud of dust hung upon their rear, which filled my mouth and eyes, and nearly smothered me. In the midst of this I could see nothing, and the buffalo were not distinguishable until within thirty feet. They crowded together more densely still as I came upon them, and rushed along in such a compact body that I could not obtain entrance, the horse almost leaping upon them. In a few moments, the mass divided to the right and left, the horns clattering with a noise heard above everything else, and my horse darted into the opening. Five or six bulls charged on us as we dashed along the line, but were left far behind. And, singling out a cow, I gave her my fire, but struck too high. She gave a tremendous leap, and scoured on swifter than before. I reined up my horse, and the band swept on like a torrent, and left the place quiet and clear. Our chase had led us into dangerous ground. A prairie dog village, so thickly settled that there were three or four holes in every 20 yards square, occupied the whole bottom for nearly two miles in length. Looking around, I saw only one of our hunters, nearly out of sight, and the long, dark line of our caravan crawling along, three or four miles distant. Continuing up the Platte River, Fremont reached the junction of the North and South Platte on the second day of July. He now divided his forces, sending one party up the North Platte to Fort Laramie and another party up the South Platte to St. Brain's Fort and thence across country to a meeting point at Fort Laramie. This last party he determined to take charge of himself, taking Mr. Pruce and four of his best men. The Cheyennes, whose village was supposed to be on the South Platte, also decided to accompany him. The party for the North Folk was to be in the charge of Clement Lambert. The separation took place on July 5th. We'll return right after
1: these sponsor messages. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corrient. And now, back to our story.
0: The party following up the South Platte took one lead horse and a pack mule, and traveled very light. The cook had been ordered to prepare provisions for this outfit, and they started. When they stopped for noon, however, they discovered that the provisions they supposed they were carrying had been left behind, and they had nothing to eat except the meat of a poor bull that they had killed during the day. As the trip promised to be a hard one, Fremont sent two of his men, Proust and Beignet, across the country to rejoin those who were traveling up the north branch. Buffalo were abundant, and an incident of the march was a bullfight on a large scale, which the travelers intercepted. In the course of the afternoon, dust rising among the hills at a particular place attracted our attention. In riding up, we found a band of 18 or 20 buffalo bulls engaged in a desperate fight. Though budding and goring were bestowed liberally and without distinction, yet their efforts were evidently directed against one, a huge gaunt old bull, very lean, while his adversaries were all fat and in good order. He appeared very weak and had already received some wounds, and while we were looking on, was several times knocked down and badly hurt, and a very few moments would have put an end to him. Of course, we took the side of the weaker party and attacked the herd, but they were so blind with rage that they fought on, utterly regardless of our presence, although on foot and on horseback we were firing in open view within twenty yards of them. But this did not last long. In a very few seconds we created a commotion among them, one or two of which were knocked over by the balls, jumped up and ran off into the hills, and they began to retreat slowly along a broad ravine to the river. Fighting furiously as they went. By the time they had reached the bottom, we had pretty well dispersed them, and the old bull hobbled off and lie down somewhere. One of his enemies remained on the ground where we had first fired upon them, and we stopped there a short time to cut from him some meat for our supper. At length they reached the post and were cordially received by Mr. Saint Vrain. Fort Saint Vrain was on the South Platte River between what is today Brighton and Greeley, Colorado. No provisions could be had here except a little coffee, but the way from here to Fort Laramie was through a country supposed to abound in Buffalo, so that there was no danger of starvation. Here, Fremont obtained a couple of horses and three mules, and also hired a Spaniard for his trip, and took with him two others who were going to obtain service on the Laramie River. Crossing various streams, they passed through a pleasant buffalo country and crossed Lodgepole Creek and Horse Creek, coming to Goshen's Hole. The party struck the North Platte 13 miles below Fort Laramie, and continuing up the stream, they first came in view of Fort Platte, a post belonging to Messrs. Sybil and Adams, and from there kept on up to Fort John or Fort Laramie. Mr. Pruce and his party had already reached there, but had been much alarmed by the accounts of Indian hostilities received from James Bridger and a large party of traders and trappers that he was guiding eastward. Chapter 27, Fremont, Part 2 At Fort Laramie, Fremont had heard about the hostilities of the Sioux and the Cheyennes, who, the year before, had had a severe fight with a party of sixty men under the command of Mr. Frapp of St. Louis. The Indians had lost eight or ten men, and the whites half as many, including their leader. This left the Indians in a bad frame of mind, and many of the young men had gone off on a war path threatening to kill immigrants, and in fact any whites passing through their country. One or two parties had already been saved through the efforts of Fitzpatrick, of the broken hand. But the Indians were clearly in a bad temper. A large village of Sioux were camped there, and Fremont had many savage visitors, who were very much interested in him and his curious actions. His astronomical observations and instruments especially excited their awe and admiration. But the chiefs were careful to keep the younger men and the women and the children from annoying the astronomer. Here the services of Joseph Bissonette, as interpreter, were secured, and the party prepared to start. Before this was done, however, a delegation of chiefs warned Fremont not to go farther. He, however, explained to them that he must obey his orders and was finally allowed to go at his own risk. The party proceeded up the North Platte River and the first night out were joined by Bissonette, the interpreter, and his Indian wife and a young Sioux sent forward by the chiefs of Fort Laramie. Partly as guide and partly to vouch for the explorers in case they should meet the hostile stew. Fremont imagined from Bissonette's long residence in the country that he was a guide and followed his advice as to the route to be pursued. He afterward learned that Bissonette had seldom been out of sight of the fort, and his suggestions obliged the party to travel over a very rough road. They met a party of Indians who gave a very discouraging account of the country ahead, saying that buffalo were scarce and that there was no grass to support the horses, partly because of the excessive drought, and partly on account of the grasshoppers, which were unusually numerous. The next day they killed five or six cows and made dried meat of them. Buffalo continued plenty, and they pushed forward, meeting Indians who again gave them bad accounts of the country ahead, so that Bissonette strongly advised Fremont to turn about. This he declined to do but told his men what he had heard and left it to each man to say whether he would go on or turn back. Fremont had absolute confidence in a number of the best men and felt sure that they would stay with him, and to his great satisfaction, all agreed to go forward. Here, however, the interpreter and his Indian left him, and with them, Fremont sent back one of his men, who, From the effect of an old wound, was unable to travel on foot, and his horse seemed on the point of giving out. The carts were taken to pieces and cached in some willow brush, while everything that could be spared was buried in the ground. Pack saddles were arranged, and from here the animals were to carry their loads, not to haul them. Carson was appointed guide, for the region they were now entering had long been his residence. Instead of following the emigrant trail, which left the plat and crossed over to the sweetwater, Fremont determined to keep on up the plat until he reached the sweetwater, thinking that in this way he would find better feed for his animals. The decision proved a wise one. The day after leaving their cache, they found abundant grass as well as some buffalo. And although when they passed the ford, where the Indian village had crossed the river they found their skeletons of horses lying all about, they had no trouble in finding grass for their animals. On August the 1st, they camped near Independence Rock, an isolated granite rock about 650 yards long and 40 in height, everywhere within six or eight feet of the ground where the surface is sufficiently smooth and in some places 60 or 80 feet above He relates, the rock is inscribed with the names of travelers, many a name famous in the history of this country, and some well known to science, are to be found mixed among those of traders and of travelers for pleasure and curiosity, and of missionaries among the Indians. This can be found near Pathfinder Reservoir, southwest of today's Casper, Wyoming, It was on August 3 that the party had their first sight of the Wind River Mountains, distant then about 70 miles, and appearing as a low, dark, mountainous region. Soon after this, they came to the canyon where the sweet water comes out of the mountains, and they followed the river up for some distance, but finally left it and turned up a ravine leading to the high prairie above. For some time, they had found fuel very scarce, and had been obliged to burn buffalo chips and sagebrush as they did here. The rain, which from time to time had been falling upon them down in the valley, now showed as snow on the white peaks that they had approached, for they were within a short distance of the South Pass, which was the objective point for the expedition. Soon they reached the highest point of the pass, which Fremont estimates at about 7,000 feet, passed over it encamped on the Little Sandy, a tributary of the Green River. The explorer felt a natural longing to push northward from this point, wishing to cross the heads of the Yellowstone, which he justly supposed arose among the mountains which lay north of him. But the party here were in no condition to make such a journey. The men were more or less exhausted by the difficulties of past travel. Provisions were almost gone, and game was scarce. He, however, built a stout corral and felled timber on the margin of a lake not far off, where there was abundant food for the animals, and, dividing his party, left some of the men and the weakest animals here, and taking fourteen men with fifteen of the best mules, set out to penetrate farther into the mountains. Travel through the mountains was slow and difficult, but attractive. It was down one steep slope and up another, and then down again. Every hilltop showed some deep and beautiful valley, often occupied by lakes, always showing the course of some pure and rapid mountain torrent. The vegetation was fresh and green, as different as possible from the parched grass and useless wormwood through which they had been traveling for so long. At their camp of August 13th, The upward way became so steep and rough that it was determined to leave the animals here and to continue their journey on foot. The men carried with them nothing but arms and instruments, and as the day was warm, many of them left their coats in camp. They climbed and climbed, finding, as always happens in the mountains, that the distances were much greater than they supposed. At night, they were still far from their objective point, and lay down without anything to eat. The next morning, however, starting early, and of course without food, they got among the snowfields. The elevation was now great, and several of the men, Fremont among the number, were taken ill and were unable to proceed. From here, Basil with four men, was sent back to the place where the mules had been left, with instructions to bring on, if possible, four or five animals, with provisions and blankets. Soon after this, Fremont and the remaining men returned to their camp, and that night, the men sent back for the animals returned with food and bedding. The next day, encouraged by rest and a couple of hearty meals, they determined once more to assay the peaks. They rode their animals well up onto the mountains, and then, turning them loose, again began to climb. Their previous experience stood them in good stead. They climbed slowly and, at last, reached the summit of the mountains. Presumably the peak known as Fremont's Peak. From this point, the three Tetons bore north fifty degrees west, and Fremont's elevation he gives us thirteen thousand five hundred and seventy feet. He says with reasonable pride, quote, "We had climbed the loftiest peak of the Rocky Mountains and looked down upon the snow a thousand feet below, and standing where no human foot had stood before." felt the exultation of first explorers. They returned to the camp where they had left their animals and traveled rapidly eastward through South Pass and down onto the Sweetwater and the Platte. An effort was made to run this river with the India rubber boat, which, for daring and hardihood, really deserved success. However, although they ran some distance and passed a number of threatening places, they did not get through. Quote, we pushed off again, but after making a little distance the force of the current became too great for the men on shore, and two of them let go of the rope. Lajeunesse, the third man, hung on and was jerked head foremost into the river from a rock about twelve feet high, and down the boat shot like an arrow. How far we went, I do not exactly know, but we succeeded in turning the boat into an eddy below. Cre Dieu!' said Basil Lajeunesse. As he arrived immediately after, Lajunesse was quoted as saying, Good Lord, I believe I have some half a mile. He had owed his life to his skill as a swimmer, and I determined to take him and the two others on board and trust to skill and fortune to reach the other end in safety. We placed ourselves on our knees, and with the short paddles in our hands, the most skillful boatman being in the bow, and again we commenced our rapid descent. We cleared rock after rock, and shot past fall after fall, our little boat seeming to play with the cataract. We became flushed with success and familiar with the danger, and yielding to the excitement of the occasion, broke forth together in a Canadian boat song. Singing, and rather shouting, we dashed along, and were, I believe, in the midst of the chorus, when the boat struck a concealed rock immediately at the foot of a fall, which whirled her over in an instant. Three of my men could not swim, and my first feeling was to assist them and save some of our effects, but a sharp concussion or two convinced me that I had not yet saved myself. A few strokes brought me into an eddy, and I landed on a pile of rocks on the left side. Looking around, I saw that Mr. Preuss had gained the shore on the same side, about twenty yards below, and a little climbing and swimming soon brought him to my side. On the opposite side, against the wall, lay the boat. Bottom up, and Lambert was in the act of saving Descateau, whom he had grasped by the hair, and who could not swim. Don't let go, dear brother, don't let go. Do not fear, I will die before I let you go. Such was the reply of courage and generosity in this danger. For a hundred yards below, the current was covered with floating books and boxes, bales of blankets, and scattered articles of clothing, and so strong and boiling was the stream that even our heavy instruments, which were all in cases, kept on the surface, and the sextant, circle, and the long black box of the telescope were in view all at once. For a moment I felt somewhat disheartened. All our books, almost every record of the journey, our journals and registers of astronomical and barometrical observations, had been lost in a moment. But it was no time to indulge in regrets and I immediately set about endeavoring to save some from the wreck. Making ourselves understood as well as possible by signs, for nothing could be heard over the roar of the waters, we commenced our operations. Of everything on board, the only article that had been saved was my double-barreled gun, which Descoteau had caught and clung to with drowning tenacity. The men continued down the river on the left bank. Mr. Proust and myself descended on the side we were on, and La with the paddle in his hand, jumped on the boat alone and continued down the canyon. She was now light and cleared every bad place with much less difficulty. In a short time, he was joined by Lambert, and the search was continued for about a mile and a half, which was as far as the boat could proceed in the pass. Here, the walls were about 500 feet high, and the fragments of rock from above had choked the river into a hollow pass, but one or two feet above the surface. Through this and the cracks of the rock, the water found its way. Favored beyond our expectations, all of our registers had been recovered, with the exception of one of my journals. Fortunately, our other journals contained duplicates of most of the important barometrical observations which had been taken in the mountains. In addition to these, we saved the circle, and these, with a few blankets, constituted everything that we had rescued from the waters. Having gathered up the things which they left on the shore, the members of the party, half naked, started on foot for the camp below where the other men had been sent. They reached there that night and found the much-needed food and clothing. After passing Fort Laramie, Fremont made another effort to navigate the Platte River, trying to descend it in a bull boat. But this descent, instead of being a trip by water, resolved itself into dragging the vessel over the sands and finally abandoning it. On the 22nd of September, Fremont reached the village of the Grand Pawnees, about 30 miles above the mouth of the Loop Fork on the Platte River. And on October the 1st, he found himself in the settlements on the Missouri River. From here, the river was descended in a boat and St. Louis was reached on October the 17th. What a wild ride! We traversed some of that country when we were coming back from our Yellowstone trip, and it is the West. I'm telling you. Well, come on back next week, and we'll have another story for you. And in the meantime, check out One Thousand and One Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. The latest episode about the baddest outlaw of them all, Harvey Kid Curry Logan which goes deep into Logan's violent career with the Wild Bunch and includes personal narratives from witnesses, sheriffs, and the men hired to hunt him down, including Charlie Soringo. We've had a couple Charlie Soringo episodes in the past. So again, check out 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries, which is really the flagship of the 1001 Stories podcast family. Again, thank you, John Hagedorn, and thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Stories from the Old West. If you enjoyed this episode, please do send us a review. This is your host, Kevin Sykes, speaking on behalf of the 1001 Stories Network. Take care, and we'll be back soon with a brand new story.